This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. For this week's episode, we were joined by Jennifer Eberhardt, social psychologist at Stanford University and author of Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think and Do. In a wide-ranging interview with the BBC's Razia Iqbal, she explores the science behind the hidden prejudices that shape racial inequality around the world. We hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you're interested in coming to any Intelligence Squared events, do go on our website, intelligencesquared.com, and you can use an exclusive discount code. Just type in podcast at the checkout. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. I'm a journalist for the BBC. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Really good to to be with you. Um, Your book opens with a story that is so striking. I wonder if you would tell us. It's about your son when he was five years old traveling on a plane with you. That's right. And he makes an observation. Yes. So he looks around on the plane and he's all wide-eyed, right? He's all excited about being on that plane. And he sees this man and he says, hey, that guy looks like daddy. So I look at the guy, and the guy looks at nothing at all like my husband. So I'm looking like, what's going on with him, right? And so I start to look around on the plane, and I realize this guy's the only black guy on the plane. And so I'm thinking, all right, you know, I'm going to have to have a talk with my son about how not all black people look alike, right? So I'm getting all set up to have this talk. But before I could say anything... My son looks at me and says, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. And I said, what? What did you say? And he said it again. He says, well, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. And I said, well, you know, daddy wouldn't rob a plane. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know that. And I said, well, why would you say that? And he looked at me with this really sad face. And he says, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I was thinking that. 
And, you know, I use that story to open up, you know, the book because I want people to understand how, you know, bias is not about this unconscious bias. You know, it doesn't require evil people. It doesn't require bad actors. It's just requires a person who's out there and absorbing things from the world. And this is what my you know, son had absorbed. At the age of five, he was already absorbing the association of black people with crime. Yes. And that must have really shocked you. It did. What were you thinking you might be able to do to counter that? For him, apart from your own professional pursuit... I th- I think for me, I mean, so I am a social scientist, and so that's my go-to. And I really believe um, that part of the countering is actually noticing that it's happening and being able to talk about it. So, you know, we had that conversation. I didn't just let it go and pretend like I didn't hear him say what he said, even though I felt like that. I, I, I wanted to, you know, not believe, right, that he had said it, and I didn't want to have that conversation. But, but, you, but I confronted him with it, and I, I made him think. I, I asked him questions until he could tell me, you know, what was going on. And, and I did it in such a way that he would think about that again. He would think about that conversation when he had that kind of a thought again. I, I thought it was very interesting because you go on to tell a story about yourself and how when you grew up in a largely uh, – African-American area, you, your parents then move to a, a, an area that is more diverse and you have to get to know white kids in school. Yeah. And, and, and the point of that story, again, is to show that it's, it's possible to have bias right. that isn't to do with being in a position of status or power. It is just an ordinary thing. Just tell me that story because I think it's so fascinating that you are immediately inclusive in this book. Well, yeah. So I was um, 12 years old when my parents decide to, decided to move us from a you know, a neighborhood that was all black to a neighborhood that was pretty much all white. And so I'm sort of nervous about going to the school and about being accepted and whether I would belong, whether I would fit in and so forth. And uh, it turned out that the, you know, that the students at the school were great and they welcomed me and they showed me around and I still had problems making friends. And, and that problem came from me, you know, from not being able to actually tell their faces apart. So they'd be nice to me, and I wouldn't be able to tell one from the other the next day. And it was hard to keep track of who was who. And I just, I was so motivated to do it, but I couldn't do it because I had not been exposed really to um, white faces in that way. And so it it just took some time for me to, um, you know, for my brain to kind of catch up to this new environment that I was in. And so I, I'm so intrigued that you choose those stories to open the book with because it, it feels to me that you want to make it a comfortable space for people to talk about issues that are difficult. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that that is my hope for the book. 
is that um, people can read it and that it could play some small role in, in, in encouraging people to think about these issues and have those conversations. But this is all also rooted in in the science and the experiments yes. that you have conducted. And and, and I, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about those um, in, in a moment, because I, I want to just establish whether you are absolutely clear in your mind, given the stage that you're at professionally, that unconscious bias is really not the same thing as racism. Right. That's right. I mean, so unconscious bias is something that we're all vulnerable to. And in the book, I'm looking at the science behind it, uh, right? And people oftentimes will think, okay, um, if if you're talking about bias, that means you're talking about people who are filled with hate. Um, you're making a moral argument. You're saying I'm a bad person, all of these things. And, you know, so so we're thinking about, as, as scientists, we would uh, define unconscious bias as the beliefs and the feelings we have about social groups that can influence our decision-making and our actions, even when we're not aware of it. Okay, but but there are still power relationships at work because yes. a lot of the a lot of the the mapping that you do yeah. it, it is something that I really want to get into. You genuinely believe that it's possible to neurologically map unconscious bias. Yes. Tell me about some of the experiments that you you uh, look at in the book because one of the ones that really struck me was the one where um, a group of young men are consistently uh, African-American men consistently right. engaged in petty crime right. against Asian women. Right. Just tell me that story. Well, yeah. So they um, were going to Chinatown and they were robbing uh, the purses of these uh, middle-aged Chinese women. And uh, when the police, you know, asked them, well, why are you going there? Why are you focused on them? And they would say, you know, because um, they can't tell brothers apart, uh, basically. So they they understood, you know, the science on, on, on one level, and they kind of used that to as cover. And so, you know, I say in the book that they could rob them in broad daylight because and they needed no mask because their face was their mask and yet if they had targeted african american women mm -hmm. um those women would have been able oh, yeah. to identify them right right in an instant right Let, let's look at the, the the kinds of experiments that you've conducted that show that that unconscious bias exists in so many different areas. Tell me about some of the ones that particularly interested you, kind of the facial recognition tests that you have conducted. You know, with, with those tests, we were interested in looking at to see if there was some neural correlate or some neural basis for this, what researchers call the other race effect. And that's simply well, you know, what we've been talking about, that people are better at recognizing faces of their own race than faces of other races. And so we uh, conducted a neural imaging study Study where we put people in a scanner, uh, black and white uh, participants, and we showed them images, the faces of, you know, black people and white people. And we just looked at how the brain responded. Now, there's an area of the brain called the fusiform face area. Um, and that area is towards, towards the back of the brain and it um, gets activated. It's highly implicated in face uh, processing, especially or sort of being able to uh, determine the identity and uh, faces and recognizing faces and so forth. And we found for both black and white subjects that we, uh, that there was more activation in that area of the brain to faces of their own race than to faces of other races. 
But then there's an extension of this particular type of uh, of mapping where the the idea is to try and figure out whether people instinctively associate black faces with criminal intent. Right. What what is it that you found when you conducted those experiments? Well, we conducted a lot of those experiments over years, and you find that there's a really tight association between blackness and criminality. And it's so tight, in fact, that it can influence not only how we see people, but how we see objects and how we see places and, you know, how we see other things. And, and so it's, it's pretty, pretty strong. So, for example, if you just expose people to a series of black male faces and you show them, you know, blurry images of objects and some are crime relevant like guns and knives and others are crime irrelevant like staplers and cameras, we find that um, just exposing them to those black faces facilitates their ability to recognize these blurry images of guns and knives and so forth. Just to extend the argument a little further, because you've done an awful lot of work with police departments, yes. because they're, they're cl- you're clearly making a, a, a direct correlation between the the bias that people instinctively have as a right. result of the society yes. in which they move yeah. with the responses that they then have in a professional capacity so for example across america you know for many many years we have seen the relationship between police departments and African-American men in particular yes. which has deteriorated over over time yes to the point where we have seen police officers shoot young African-American men, sometimes in the back. Yes. And so on. And it's given rise to the Black Lives Matter movement uh, uh, and, and a lot of societal pressure, which hasn't often resulted in justice being seen to be done. So mm-hmm. I want to I want to look a little bit at the experiments that you conduct that actually make a connection between how a police officer behaves when they stop someone who is white as opposed to when they stop someone who is African-American. So, for example, we've done studies where we've looked at body-worn camera footage uh, from police officers. And here we were interested in um, looking across a large number of, of these cases. So we looked at 1,000 uh, routine traffic stops. Um, so it wasn't just one case or isolated you know, situation. And it was uh, the kind of um, you know interaction that's pretty routine. Uh, right, everyday interactions. And we were interested in whether uh, officers spoke to black drivers in a different way than uh, white drivers, basically. That was the basic idea. And we found that, um, you know, officers were speaking, um, you know, professionally overall, uh, but there was a difference. Uh, They they uh, spoke in a less respectful way to black drivers than they did to white drivers. I want to focus and highlight on uh, uh, your own personal experience. You were about to graduate from Harvard mm-hmm. and you were stopped yes. by a police officer. You were with a friend in a car and right. you were stopped. Tell right. us that story because it was pretty unpleasant. And this was a while ago. Yeah, I was just, I mean, this was the, the day before my graduation uh, from Harvard with a PhD in psychology and um, was just um, driving with a friend in, in Boston. We got pulled over near a housing complex and the uh, uh, officer, um, we didn't know why we were pulled over and he just didn't seem interested in, in clearing that up for us at all. And we were detained for quite some time, not knowing what was going on. The officer 
spoke really rudely to us, uh, just really uh, disrespectfully. And so I physically assaulted you too. Yeah, in the end, because he showed up, you know, at the car door and demanded that we exit the car after we'd seen a tow truck come. And, you know, so uh, and we didn't know what was going on. And so I just decided to sit in the car and um, I felt like, uh, you know, I, I didn't deserve that treatment. And I was sitting in the car basically in protest. And so sitting quietly in protest. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, he decided to um, just open the car door and yank me out and he body slammed me on the roof um, of the car and it just knocked the wind out of me. I couldn't speak and um, my body kind of went limp and yeah, he rested us, handcuffed us and took us to the precinct and handcuffed us to a wall. So at this point, I suppose I ought to let the listeners know that the police officer in question was black. Yes. So explain to me your interpretation of that event. Well, I mean, at the time, I I didn't know. I mean, I was just upset, you know, by what had happened at the time. And I felt like in terms of its effect on me that, uh, you know, I felt less safe, I guess, in the world that this could happen. And there were five cruisers that showed up for these expired tags. That was the, that was the offense. And, um, and there were all the, these people all around on the street watching and just the idea that I was at the center of the storm and that so many people could watch this, witness this, and there was nothing that could be done. And, and the, and the behavior was so brazen that he knew that, like he could, uh, treat me whatever way, no matter what time of day, no matter who was watching. And so that upset me, uh, for sure. Uh, but it wasn't until many years later, I guess in writing a book, really, that I recalled that incident again. And and I could see it um, as a part of a larger issue, right? So it wasn't just, you know, this unfortunate thing that happened to me. It turned out that in the 90s, you know, when this was going on, um, you know, this was a, a practice that was, uh, you know, that police departments around the country used to, you know, to stop people and to check them out and to, you know, especially people they were, you know, suspecting of criminal activity, they would um, sort of use this, these sort of pretextual stops where you get stopped for some minor violation and it gives the officer the right um, to, you know, to, um, you know, to pull you over and to talk to you and check you out and see what's happening and all of that. And, and it's perfectly legal. Um, and so this was a, a major crime fighting tool for a long time. And it's to, to this day, I mean, I think that's why a lot of resentment has built up, um, uh, over the years, uh, against, um, you know, uh, police officers, especially when you're looking at, um, communities of color and African Americans in particular. Uh, so yes. You you are a natural storyteller in in this book, and and you you pepper you pepper the entire academic research that you have done with personal stories like the one that you've just shared, mm-hmm. but but also stories uh, that are rooted in our own society's consciousness. Yes, you know, really powerful stories from the Rodney King uh, beating in Los Angeles, which resulted in riots, to the more recent killings of African-American uh, men at the hands of uh, uh, American police officers. And and I wonder, as an African-American woman who has boys mm-hmm. who are growing up in America, I, I, I wonder how you reflect, as you have in the book, about mm-hmm. that. Their, 
their story, their lives against this big backdrop that you have such an acute understanding of? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's 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 hard, but it's also easier because I'm a social scientist, and so the questions that I have about that are are you know questions that I could explore through research, and I can um, you know seek answers and provide those answers right to the world and to you know people who are sort of interested uh, in these issues, and I feel like. You know, there's a unique vantage point that that comes, you know, from that, and um, it's it's a way. It, 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 you know, it's funny. Um, I didn't learn this until writing the book either. Just the role that science can play in all of our lives. I, I think, um, you know, for me, for a long time, science was about information and knowledge seeking and so forth. But I, I realized just how many people I met um, in 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 the course of writing the book, and that I you know talked to who shared their stories with me. And uh, and I came to realize that they that the science actually soothes, you know, that that, you know, there's a way in which they are welcome, you know, the science that helped them to understand, you know, what, what's going on and what's happening to them. And I, I remember uh, meeting with Tiffany Crutcher. And so she's the twin sister of Terrence Crutcher, who was shot by the police when his car broke down in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he had his hands up in the air and he's walking towards his car and he was you know, he was shot and he 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 died. And so she She was his like twin. She was his twin and she said to me that she felt like she a part of her died, you know, with him. And you know, so she's left on her own trying to figure out well what happened and what can I do and how do I move forward? And so she's been sort of involved in, you know, police reform efforts and so forth, but I don't know if the science for her really mattered. I mean, it, it really... She's a doctor, right? Yes, yes, that's right. Um, and uh, she told me, so um, she called me after the book was released and said she had read the, you know, the chapter that I had written about, you know, the family to her parents. And she said the three of them just cried and they... And there were tears of, um, I don't know how to explain it, I guess um, tears that represented hope for change. Like there was something um, in having that information and having the science that, you know, a- allowed um, some comfort, uh, you know, for them. And so, and and I I kind of feel like that too and in, in, um, just in my own life. Like, and in, in you ask about um you know, my children and how do you, you know, um, handle all of this. And I guess the science soothes me too. I mean, that th- I go to it because it does feel like it, it gets me through. One of the most moving parts of your book is when, in the context of the soothing uh, powers of, of science. Um, not a sentence I've ever thought I would say out loud, <laughs> frankly, as a completely Me illiterate either. science person. Um, but it, it's that period of time when you are teaching uh, prisoners, some yes. of them who are facing um, not just life, but I, I, I don't know if there's anyone who's facing uh, the death sentence. Well, no, 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 no but just, there were a lot of there, lifers. There were a lot of lifers in, mm-hmm. in San Quentin prison. That's right. And, and just tell me the impact because your relationship with those people was so fascinating, not just because a lot of them uh, were not very well educated and they were writing essays and papers for yeah. you, but also the impact of what you taught them about the 
the social science yeah, of, oh, their, their, of their fate. That's a great connection. I hadn't even thought about that before. But yeah, you're, you're right. Um, the, the science meant a lot to them as well. And it's funny because I had wanted to teach at a prison for, you know, a while because I was doing a lot of work on the criminal justice system. But you know, I, and I felt like I kind of had a sense of, of, of uh, you know, this sort of policing culture and the industry. And I knew somewhat a little bit, you know, about the uh, court system, but nothing at all about prisons. You know, they're so, you know, they're behind these walls and you don't, you know, know, um, you know, who these, who these people are and, and how, you know, it impacts them and so forth. And so, but then I thought, well, you know, I can go in and I could teach about stereotyping and prejudice and I can teach about race and crime, but I thought that would be depressing and that that would just, you know, make things worse. And so for years I was thinking, well, I do want to go and teach, but I don't know if this is the thing I should do. And finally I went and, and I taught about those issues and I have to say they were so so grateful. Um, you know, every time I came in, they were thankful. Uh, every time I went in, we had these incredible, you know, conversations, you know, about uh, the criminal justice system, about their lives, about um, the way that race could influence, you know, people's decision making and these actors within the system. And so I um, I learned so much uh, for, from them. And then the last, the first class I taught, the last day of class, they all you know, clapped and um, they all thanked me one by one, and they told me that they were going to save these readings, and that and instead of the, it being depressing, it was completely empowering. I mean, there was a way in which they could see their own lives differently. I mean, in the same way, when I thought back on that arrest and all of that, I could kind of see the larger forces at work. Um, that's that's how they felt. They felt like, you know, they weren't just you know in a particular prison and. California and having their own experience, they could see, um, you know, how this was all taking shape, this mass incarceration across the whole country, and that they were a part of that. They could locate themselves within, you know, that whole, um, you know, movement that, that has happened over decades in our country and, and, and come to it with a better understanding of, of the country and who they are and the system. And they felt so empowered. And, and I felt happy, you know, that, that I had gone there and that I had, you know, taken the risk of, of having those conversations with them. We're just going to pause for a, a, a break. Jennifer, let's talk about the presence of and the importance of leadership in mm-hmm. the United States. Over the period of time that you've been working as a, a, a social scientist, America has undergone all kinds of changes, not least an African-American president. Right. The positive impact of that is is quite clear to, to many people. Mm-hmm. But there are people, political analysts, who would argue that his very, Barack Obama's very presence has resulted in the election of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder how you reflect on what that meant to you, his election, how that might have changed society, what it did particularly in the context of your work, you know, when Trayvon Martin, the young man who was who was um, murdered, I, when Barack Obama said quite clearly he could have been my son. Right. And yet even under his presidency, not that much changed in the context of the lives of African-American men. The Black Lives Matter movement rose during the time of President Obama. And, and, and I think those contrasts are interesting because yeah. it does 
It does tell us something about the forces in society. It does, and it tells us something about the forces within ourselves. You know, we all have multiple selves. We all have, um, you know, as Du Bois would say it, right, these warring selves in, in one body, and um, and that's real. And I think um, we're seeing that in, you know, the United States right now at this um, societal level where you have, you know, two um, sort of forces uh, going in opposite directions, being pitted, um, you know, um, at, uh, you know, at the other. And uh, wh- where is this going to end up? Um, it, it's interesting you mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois because, you know, his 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 legacy, his, mm-hmm. his intellectual presence yeah. is in your book, as is James Baldwin. Yes. And, and, and I... I'd love to hear you talk about the impact of these people on you as an intellectual, as a public intellectual, because mm-hmm. th- th- there is a continuum, it seems to me. Well, yeah, you know, I um, really started reading uh, their work when I was in graduate school, and that work, those words uh, were comforting uh, to me in uh, lonely times. And I um, always wanted to... Uh, you know, sort of take this new method of, you know, the scientific method and, you know, use, you know, these sort of systematic studies to, to study, um, you know, some of the, um, you know, ideas that they um, contributed, you know, to our society. And so they were always close to me. And in fact, I opened up the book with a quote from James Baldwin. And, um, you know, he uh, says, a journey is called that because you cannot know what you will do with what you find or what you find will do to you. And I felt that in writing the book that this was a journey, you know, for me, and I didn't know, you know, how it would change me. And I... How do you think it has changed you? I think it's changed me quite a bit. I mean, I think it's really recommitted me to the idea of having some social responsibility (laughs) as a scientist. Um, Not all of us feel that responsibility, right? I mean... All of us feel responsibility to our work, but in terms of our contribution um, to society, I, I mean, I think that that sometimes gets lost. I mean, we we want to have a contribution to science, right, and to our own discipline, but to really contribute to society, um, I mean, it's a whole nother level of responsibility. And I felt like I couldn't meet that responsibility and continue to only write articles in scientific journals that only other scientists would read. And so I wanted to write a book to, um, you know, share uh, the work of social psychologists and other social scientists uh, with the world. And how how do you interpret all of that, that responsibility in the context of what you just referred to, this kind of polarizing Mm -hmm. society that we now see in the United States, but not only in the United States, in many other countries. That's right. In the context of your work, when we see the rise of white supremacists and some level of endorsement or complicity, depending on your perspective, by the President of the United States, and I'm thinking specifically of Charlottesville and and what happened with the march uh, there – I wonder how you reflect on on that in the context of the social responsibility of your work that you speak of. Well, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of actually work um, on on this issue of uh, when bias is most likely to get triggered and when are we most likely to act on it, right? Because, you know, even though we have 
you know, vulnerability to bias. Uh, we're not acting on it all the time. There are certain conditions that really uh, bring it alive. And one of those conditions would be when the social norms shift. Um, so, you know, we had this really strong norm in American society for a long time of being egalitarian. That's the value that we had. That's what we were striving for. But now you can see, you know, this eroding of that and, and, and the warring um, selves, right? That's coming about just from kind of struggling, trying to, some people trying to hold on to that and some people trying to, um, trying to pull that back. And uh, I think, um, it, once once that starts to erode, it affects all of us. And, and even people who really, you know, it's important to them to be egalitarian. That's a huge value for them. When the social norms change, even their behavior starts to shift in that direction. We're social creatures. We're social beings. And so we're going to be responding to, you know, the, the environment that we're exposed to even um, when, <laughs> you know, we're not, you know, even when we're motivated not to. Do you, do you worry, though, that there is, in the context of the specific work that you do, if you put that in the context of what we're just talking about, the, the, the warring sides, if you like, mm-hmm. lots of people on the other side from you, if you like, yes. would argue that the whole issue of unconscious bias, uh, the mapping of it, is an industry now. It's an industry that some argue is uh, social engineering with an agenda. I wonder what you would say to those, you know, academics who 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 say that too. That there are people who argue that this it's not possible to map in the way that you do people's responses. Actually, people's responses are to do with with fear of having their job taken away from them, mm-hmm. or a whole number of kind of you know uh, quite prosaic economic sometimes factors, as opposed to the 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 visceral mapping of a brain that you're talking about. I wonder what you would say to those people. Well. Well, I mean, the um, economic uh, insecurity and, and sort of fears about losing one's place in the world, those, those, are, those that's real and that can influence bias. So, so, you know, economic instability can trigger bias, fear and threat and stress and all of that, right, can, can trigger bias. So it's not a pitting, um, it, it, you know, this against that. It's um, understanding how there are mu- multiple routes into bias, right? There, there are many sort of triggers of it. And the more um, mindful we are of those triggers, the more power that we have over it. One of the things that struck me really quite strongly in your book was how you responded to the historical research that you were doing. Oh, yeah. You know, there were moments when you you actively wrote about how difficult it was for you to read the way in which people wrote about historians. Yes. Respected academics and scientists wrote about uh Africans, African-Americans, black people generally, right. and their intellectual ability or not, their, right. the smallness of their brains and so on, right. the whole kind of movement uh, of, of eugenics. And, and right. I, I was so struck by your willingness to speak openly and honestly about how much that upset you. Yeah, I mean, it did. I, <laughs> you know, that's the only uh, line of research that I engaged in where I, I had to put it down. You know, and I, I haven't done that work in a while because it was, you know, it was kind of uh, starting to, af- you know, affect me 
too much. And I, I just, um, you know, I didn't, I used to love to talk about, you know, my research, but when I was doing that work, you know, I didn't like to talk about it. I didn't like people to ask me about it. And it was one of those things that would really, you know, throw a cold chill on the conversation, right? <laughs> when you're talking at dinner and you say, hey, what are you up to? And I'm like, I'm looking at how people are still, you know, associating people of African descent with apes and what that says about us and what kind of uh, impact that has on us. And when you say you put it down, how? what kind of impact did it have on you emotionally? You had to just walk away from it? Yeah, I walked away from it. I mean, I did. I mean, I did work, and I I, I published that work, and we did lots of studies and so forth. But um, at some point, I just felt like it, it was enough. And I mean, it may be something that I pick up again later. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I, you know, I I um, I didn't have enough uh, distance from it. I think so. it, it's the kind of thing that one could imagine would make a person angry. And mm. you don't strike me as an angry person. You strike me from your book <laughs> as a deeply optimistic person and a very rational person. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I I wonder whether there is anger in you because, you know, when you talk about people like Baldwin, you know, Baldwin was rational, but he was mad as hell. Yeah. You know, he was angry about yeah. – uh, the disparity of um, the inequality of, of uh, the inequality of respect, the yes. lack of respect. Yes, yes, yes. And 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 I I wonder how you channel the the depth of emotion that you mm-hmm. clearly have felt in some of the research that you've done, and how you live with it, how it sits yeah. with you now. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, <laughs> the um, San Quentin students asked me that same question. I I uh, wanted to, this was in, in the first class I taught, like one of the last, uh, <laughs> one of the last sessions we had together, I decided I was going to present my own work. And so I talked about the work on the, you know, Black Crime Association and all that. And then I talked about the, the work on this Black Ape Association, which actually was stronger, you know, than this Black Crime Association, even though at the time when I started the work, this was before uh, Barack Obama's rise, uh, Right. And so people didn't discuss any of this and students didn't profess any knowledge of this association or history or anything. And so I was, you know, I was, I was doing that work and I was marching on and working with a number of students on this and many studies. Uh, and <laughs> I just will never forget, I presented that work. And again, all the men stood in line to shake my hand and thank me. And they thanked me and they thanked me and then got to the last man. And he said to me, um, you know, he said, you know, I, 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 I thank you for your work, and I really appreciate that you do this work. But he just shook his head, and he says, I don't know how you do it. And he said, that is that is a heavy load. And I realized— I think he said that, a heavy load of shit. Yeah, he did say that. <laughs> I didn't know if you could say that on your podcast. <laughs> he did say that, and so— that got my attention, and this was a guy. I think he was. Uh, he was, he a, was lifer. a lifer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I yeah and that. I thought, ooh. So that did make me pause, and I thought, you know, I, you know, I, and then I had to realize, you know, at that point, uh, I was thinking, you know, uh, I think I'm at the end of my line on this one. <laughs> but ultimately, ultimately, it is it is the science that soothes you. It is. It is. 
Yeah, and it's funny because I noticed that with other people, right? Um, and then it was not until finishing the book that I actually noticed that really um, for myself, like I am a meaning seeker, and this is how I make it through the day and make it through life. And uh, it's just to be in the position to um, to explore these questions that we all have and have the skills to actually create this knowledge so that pe- and give this knowledge to people so that they can understand more about themselves and their situation. I mean, I just feel like it's such a privileged position to be in. And I want to um, use that work to um, help to make, you know, the world a better place, really. And, and a privilege to, to receive it as a reader. Jennifer Eberhard, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.